Good morning. So we have been uh, going through the book of Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah, as you know, uh, has sometimes been called the fifth gospel. Not only will we have the gospels in the New Testament, but also we have the gospel in the Old Testament. Not that every other book in the Bible does not tell you or teach us about the gospel, but the book of Isaiah, as uh, we mentioned before, uh, is very unique in that it, it prophesies about the coming Messiah, what he will do, who he is, and explains uh, how things come about and what kind of people that you and I will be uh, through his transformation. So today, we come to another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah uh, chapter 61. Uh, if you will stand with me uh, as we read the word. Isaiah 61, uh, the verse 1 to 11, the whole chapter. The spirit, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall, shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the minister of, God, of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in, in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall, be a, there shall be a double portion. Instead of this honor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord of justice, I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully, faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of, of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adores herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, if you see the title of the sermon, uh, The Gospel of the Lord and the Lord of the Gospel, and you might be wondering, why are we talking about the gospel? Don't we already know the gospel? Uh, you might be thinking like, remember Alan Iverson, the famous interview, we're talking about practice, not games, but practice. You might, you might think, well, we're talking about the gospel. Should we go on to talk about something deeper, something more important, something that can actually help me live every day practically? But unlike Alan, Alan Iverson, uh, Isaiah says that we never get past the gospel. The gospel is how we live practical life. The gospel is the beginning, the middle, at the end of, and end of uh, Christian life. If you remember in the book, book of Galatians, uh, uh, the apostle Paul confronted Peter, says, hey, you're not living in line with the gospel. You're uh, not having fellowship with those who are Gentiles. 
And you know, Peter, the foremost apostle, if he needs the gospel, be reminded what the gospel is to live according to it. And I don't know if any of you are, uh, you know, apostles here. I, I don't think so. So I think that all of us uh, will need the gospel. So what will, what will we learn then from this passage about the gospel? We'll learn the content of the gospel, what it is, the people of the gospel, what it produces, and the Lord of the gospel, how it comes about. So first, the content of the gospel. Uh, as, you, as you remember, we just read that there's a lot of promises here uh, in the beginning. For example, it says that we are, will be comforted, people will be comforted. Uh, the, the, uh, the day will come when people in prison will be freed, uh, will have liberty, the poor will have good news preached to them. There's a lot of promises here in the very beginning of this passage. And as we go on, one of the things that we wonder is, these promises are wonderful and true. We'll, we'll dive into them a little later on. But what is, it, how is it that this uh, promise come? Who actually is the person that makes it possible? So the gospel. What, so what is the gospel? Is it, that's the gospel? How will we deliver? We'll have liberty. But what, how does that come about? The gospel. Uh, if you look at the very end of the passage, after we read all the wonderful things that's promised, it says, "I'll, I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord." My soul, my soul shall result in God because, at the very end, says, because God Himself is the one that will bring us about, I bring all these promises about. So, the gospel, with all its wonderful promises, at, at the very core, is that we are delivered and saved by God and by His grace alone. That's the gospel that Isaiah is saying. That's the gospel uh, the, the book of Bible, uh, Bible, all the books of the Bible talk about. So, what, 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 does that really, what, what does that really mean? What is the gospel? <coughs> Uh, so remember, the people of Israel here is hearing Isaiah say that you will be exiled very soon because you're in pride, but you will be brought back. You will be brought back to your homeland, and you will rebuild your homeland, like uh, here talked about. Um, but if you think uh, if think about the prophets in the Bible, though, there's always a near and a far uh, fulfillment. You might you might say the near fulfillment of this prophecy is that they did come back home. After a time, the people of Israel did come back and build their cities, uh, rebuild the temple. And they had, you might say, the, you know, the kind of condition for living they had before, but not as good. But there's also a far fulfillment. In the uh, book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, uh, we re- Jesus reading this, pro- part of this prophecy, in, in the beginning of this prophecy. If uh, He's saying that there's something yet to come. In me, there's something greater than what you've had when you came back from captivity into your homeland. So what Jesus is saying that there is something deeper than simply just uh, getting home, being freed from prison, literal prison. There's something deeper than simply having the joy of coming physically home. There's something deeper in your heart and my heart that we need to be free from. It isn't just physical prison. There's a saying in China, where I'm from, that you can be as free as it can be, but you cannot escape the prison of your own heart. You and I have a prison in our own hearts that we cannot liberate ourselves from. And that is what the Bible says how we can get free, is that we get free from prison by trusting God, by his grace alone. So this means that what Jesus is saying is that even though the people of Israel are free, even though you and I are free today, we still have that deeper need that that still haven't been met. So a couple of things I want to drill down to make more practical is that salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is from, from our sins. Now, 
I know that the idea of grace, the idea of we cannot earn our salvation, may be a wonderful idea, but it may it may not be. It may be very uncomfortable to uh, to you and I in this in this time at the end time because we live in a culture where we valorize those who work hard, which is great. You earn everything you you do. You earn your college degree. You earn your job. You earn your paycheck. Everything you do tend to be based on your performance, which is in some ways good because we do need to do a good job in everything we do. We do need to do well in school and our jobs. However, uh, we, when we get used to this kind of mindset, we can forget that when it comes to our own salvation, it's not by our works. It's not by how well you've done. It's not by how good a person you are. It's not even by how well you've done the past week, the past month, the past year. It's not by how well you've kept all the commandments, all the Ten Commandments or everything in the Bible. You are saved, I'm saved, not because what we've done, but because what someone else has done. And that can be very uncomfortable. Another thing <clears throat> is that the salvation is from, from something we talked about, the captive, captivity of our hearts. This can be probably the most offensive thing that you can say today. When, when, you know, when I say we need the salvation from our sin, it sounds very judgmental. It sounds like I'm blaming people for having done something wrong. Hey, you're a sinner. You need to repent, that kind of thing. You've heard it before. It sounds like the Bible is beating, beating you over the head. Hey, Get in line. You're a sinner. And that really isn't what the Bible is saying, even though it does say that we have sin in our hearts. That's true. We need a deliverance. The Bible's idea of sin is actually more multifaceted than that. Um, first, we sin, but also people sin against us. So the, the Bible recognizes that we live in, in a place where there's structural sin, there's uh, uh, systemic sin, so that we're not only um, perpetrators are also victims of sin. So the Bible says that you are not always being told, hey, you're as bad as you can be. No, that's never the case. But you're also victims. You, you can be harmed by others. But it also says that um, um, the idea of sin, it also says that it's not simply just uh, you're doing bad things, but you're also looking for all the good things in the wrong places. It's actually pitching you as if you're in a, in a boat alone on the ocean. Imagine being alone on the ocean for a week, no water, no food. You're at the verge of dying, you can't go on anymore. You're so thirsty, you can't even open your mouth. And you look out there in the ocean, there's ocean water. But you know that if you drink that ocean water, you actually die, you will not survive. Salty water in that case does not help you at all. And that's what the Bible says about our sin, is that we're sinned against, but also we are living in this condition that we look out there, try to draw, quench our thirst with things that will poison us. We're trying to grab the salt water to quench thirst that you, you will actually eventually kill us. And that's the picture of sin that the Bible uh, uh, portrays for us, for you and I. Now, so I know that that can be very offensive, sounds judgmental, but really it is a condition that we all live in, whether or not we like to admit we live in that condition of captivity of our hearts. A captivity that's more acute, you might say, than the captivity that people Israel felt when they went to Babylon and before that Syria. So then, however, uh, that after that bleak picture, you might say, there's also promises to, uh, to God's people. The second point is that there's a people of God that's produced by the gospel. What does the people look like? The people, uh, the, God produces people individually and collectively. Individually, we read here that individually they will be 
uh, liberated from captivity, as I will mention, individually you have joy in your hearts. Uh, individually you have your shame turned into honor. There's a lot of aspects of this, but I want to kind of you know, get in detail on one, which is the idea of joy. Isaiah is promising his first hearers and readers that there's true joy that you can have. That's weird. You, you, I'm going to be exiled. You can say, well, Isaiah, what are you talking about? I'm going to lose my home, uh, my family even, maybe maybe my own life. I may never come see my home again. You tell me that there's joy to be had. There, you tell me that there's a, there will be a day where the ashes of mourning, ashes of sorrow will be taken away. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be joy. There will be joy even as I'm out um, in another foreign country. Uh, today, you know, we talk a lot about happiness. We want to be happy, uh, you know, happily ever after even, or the, the idea of happy, being happy, even having the emotion of happiness, which is great, which, which it does, uh, is attractive. We all want to be happy, but you and I know that happiness come and go. It does not stay. The feeling of being happy can stay for a time. Maybe your team has just won a championship. You're happy for the weekend. Maybe you had just submitted your thesis and successfully defended you happy for a time because you've finally accomplished something great. And that's great, but you know that the happiness don't last. They don't stay for long. But Isaiah is saying that there is deeper, a deeper thing than happiness. There's joy to be had that can face any circumstance. There's something that even physical exile can take away. Even the, uh, even the um, possibility of death can take away. Something that if you have, if you have, if you know that, if you truly, truly live uh, because of the gospel, then nothing in this life or the next life can can shake you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful promise. And this idea of joy is portrayed in a really peculiar way in this passage. Isaiah is saying that you will come back and build up the ancient ruins in verse uh, 4 here, and you will raise up the former dev- devastations. In a spiritual sense, that is what the gospel will do. It will repair. It will repair you and your heart. It also means that whatever happened in the past, the devastations, the ruins, does no longer define you. Your past, your past hurts, uh, your past heartbreaks, they don't define you anymore. It does not mean that they're not real. It does not mean they can be truly terrible, but your past does not define you if you're in the gospel. We'll talk about that, what that means later on, but know that there's a promise of joy that can compensate for whatever heartbreak you've gone through, even though they're terrible. Those long nights are very, very hard. You may have cried a lot about something. In anguish, praying, have no answers. You may have seasons where you can't understand why something had happened to you or your loved one. But those paths are real and hurting, but they do not define you anymore. There's a joy to be had. We'll talk about that, how that to be reality. But before that, I also want to draw your attention to the fact that the gospel does not only save you individually, it also saves you into a community. As you, as you notice, all these prophecies of Isaiah are spoken to, are promised to a people, not simply a one individual or a few people, but all the people. He's saying that when you come back, when you come back from captivity, you will live in this community where you rebuild ruins, you will live in joy, you will live in freedom, you live in honor. Even foreigners, uh, strangers here, people from other nations will come to be a community with you. Therefore, um, when you think about the Christian life, uh, we cannot only simply think about how you and I individually have been saved, but how we are to be a people, (coughs) a people that live, (coughs) pardon me, 
that live according to the gospel live that because we've been saved by grace so that we have true joy as a community. Um, another uh, word the Bible used to describe this community is family. Uh, we have various uh, earthly families. Some families are good, some families are not so good. It's easy for us to kind of picture our earthly family onto the heavenly family we have, but that's actually uh, the, re the reality is that they reverse. Uh, the heavenly family is a, is a paradigm on which we should build our earthly family. <clears throat> that even though there's brokenness in our earthly family, but we know that there's a heavenly family here where joy and freedom is to be had. But you also realize that you don't get to choose your family. <clears throat> you cannot choose to be born in a certain family. You're born into a family. Therefore, when you come into the Christian community, we cannot simply pick and choose, oh, I like this person, I don't like that person. She's a Christian, he's a Christian, but I don't like them, so I can just avoid them. As uncomfortable as that is, Isaiah is saying, the gospel is saying, you're safe into a community with people sometimes vastly different from you, have different paths than you, different temperaments. However, we're a family. Therefore, we don't just get to pick and choose to be people who, are, who we like. We are to live uh, in love as much as we can with everyone in the, in the community. So the gospel, the gospel is we're saved by grace alone, by God's grace alone. The gospel saves us individually, but also collectively. And lastly, we're, we're to look at how does this transformation, how does this come about? How can we have that joy? How can we have this freedom? How can we be this uh, people? And this is what, when we look to the Lord of the gospel, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah. As, as you see here in the beginning, that he says, the Lord had anointed me uh, to bring, anointed to do, do this work, to bring good news, to, to preach uh, good news to the poor, to liberate the cap captives. So this anointed, we've been talking about this anointed one a lot in, in, in the book of Isaiah already, that the Messiah is to come to deliver people, that there is someone who, who will come one day to actually fulfill all the promises here. As you remember, throughout Jesus' earthly life, people constantly ask him, are you the, the one to come? Are you the prophet or are you the one... People had this in mind at that time, that there is someone to come. There's someone uh, sent from God that will liberate them. So people sometimes will say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Would you this time bring back the, the actual earthly nation of Israel? Jesus says, no, that's not exactly what the, what the Messiah does. The Messiah is doing something deeper than that. The Messiah is changing your heart. He's liberating you from your heart. And of course, another aspect of this person, though, is not he's just a human, but he's a Lord, he's a Lord or Lord God. Here in this passage, uh, and the rest of Isaiah, we, we realize that this person does not only speak simply as a human being or someone who is just a king who comes to lead an army to conquer, but someone is divine, someone who's divine, who is not just human. This is very interesting because uh, at Isaiah's time, people would think, okay, uh, that's great that one day someone will bring us home and that'll be it. But when Jesus, says it, when Jesus comes, he says, no, that's not all of it, that you need something greater. You need God himself to come to be with you, to deliver you. And this is also something that uh, maybe if you're, if you're non-Christian uh, or if you know someone's non-Christian, you might hear people say that, uh, you know, Jesus is a great moral teacher, but I don't think I will, you know, I don't think we need to talk about how this, he's Lord or King or something. But Jesus actually claims too much for that to be true, as you, as you might know. Uh, C.S. Lewis has famously, famously said that someone who claimed to be God and man like Jesus did, uh, either he's a lunatic, he's totally crazy, or he's someone you need to bow your knee to and to, to worship. There's not a middle, middle option. If you come across a human being who says, I'm God, 
I am God, and I am here to free you, to save you from your sins, you think that person's utterly crazy, unless he's telling the truth. In this case, he is telling the truth, that he is the one to bring about salvation. And we'll talk more about that, what that, what that practical means. But one, one more thing I want to uh, draw your attention on before we get there is that there's interesting imagery of wedding here that uh, the, the Messiah compared himself both to the bridegroom and to the bride. He's saying that I am clothed with righteousness. I'm clothed with the garment of righteousness. It, I'm clothed with joy, with happiness, with, with, with gladness, with joy to come to give that to you. And that's a very interesting imagery to think about. As you think about uh, on, on, on the wedding day, or if you've, you've been to a wedding, that the bride and groom are probably the most beautiful they, they have been in their whole life, maybe, maybe the rest of their life, the most beautiful day, the most joyous, joyous day. They're close to show their commitment to each other. They're close to show that we are married, now we're in the covenant. Now I'm, I belong to you, you belong to me. All my joy are yours, all your sorrows are mine. We're sharing this life together. And that's what the Messiah is promising. He's saying that I am coming to bring this joy to you, to give that to you. So the, the gospel is, uh, we, we're saved by grace, by someone else's work, by someone else's great uh, righteousness, not by our own, own righteousness. That he is bringing the clothes of righteousness to, to clothe to you so you, you might become oaks of righteousness. Here's what that means then. Salvation by grace. Um, the, the famous story from Martin Luther, as you might remember, the reformer, before he was converted to, Christian, uh, to reform Christianity, he was an a Augustinian monk. He had a really troubled conscience. He couldn't shake the idea that he was so sinful. So sometimes he would even go to the confessional to, to confess for six hours even at a time. He just confessed and confessed until he couldn't find anything. And once he leaves, once he leaves the, the church, he will think about more things. He had to come back and confess again. He would just confess and confess and confess all the time. He couldn't get all the sins out of his life. He felt like he could never confess enough. And he also says that he was a very upright person. He lived strictly according to the rules of um, being a monk. He didn't do anything, you might say, outwardly to break the commandments. He was a very good person. But he just couldn't shake the idea that I can't, I can't clean myself. It's like there's so, so much more that, uh, to me that I, can, that I can handle. And then one day he was meditating on the words, the righteousness of God in, the, in Romans 1.17. Of course, in Romans 1.17, it says the righteousness of God comes by faith and by, by grace, by implication. So he thought about, oh, that's how you get saved. You don't get saved by working up your resume or making yourself better. You don't get saved by confessing one more sin. You don't get saved simply. You can somehow come out with everything you've ever had. Of course, confession is good, but you don't get saved by that either. You don't get saved by who you are. You can say by who Jesus was. I have said that, um, one last thing before we wrap up. Well, I have said that in Christ, you, your past does not define you. How is that possible? That's only possible because Jesus' past has been put on you. you. His past defines you. His cross, his resurrection, his life. What he's done in the past on your behalf has been put on you. He stood in your place. His past now is credited to your account. And your past has been put on his account so that you can be called Oaks of Righteousness, that he can take the sin that troubled you, the imprisonment that in your heart, the darkness, so that your past will not define you, not because they're not real, not because they're not hurt, not terrible, terrible times, but they don't define you because you have someone else's past put on you. And if by faith you have that, 
And you can have this joy in your heart that no matter what happens, that you know that it, things will be okay and life will be okay, even though time can be hard. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your credit uh, of your actions to our account. Help us live in the joy of the gospel and the joy of knowing you, our only Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.